grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Amen. Is anybody here into ancestry? Maybe some of you like to go uh, to Ancestry.com where you can research your family history. Find out where you come from and who were the first immigrants to bring your family name to America. It was in the 1850s to about the year 1913 that the United States saw the greatest influx of immigrants that it ever had. There were some 30 million Europeans that came to America during those 20, 30 years, they made up 15% of the population. And they brought with them their own family name, their own language, their own culture. As they came to America, there were certain things that America did for them that changed them. One of the most significant ways that these new families were assimilated into American culture and society was the public education system. So public schools were able to bring in all these new kids, teach them the English language, teach them civics, teach them about George Washington and the history of this land. And as time went on, gradually they became more and more Americanized. One of the greatest markers of this was the names. And during this time, a significant amount of those foreign names became less and less, and more American versions of children's names became more and more. So you had the education changing them, you had the culture changing them, and you had even their names changing them. Of course, not everyone who had come to America in that time and the time prior to that were under the same circumstances. Your ancestors probably came willingly. They probably came of their own choice. They came because they were looking for freedom. They were looking for refuge. They were looking for a new beginning here in America. But of course, there were others brought to America around that time and in time prior to that, who came in shackles, who came on ships because they were stolen away and became slaves. I want you to think about Daniel today and how he came to a new place where the education changed him, the society changed him, and even his own name changed him. But not because he had come there looking for freedom and opportunity, but because he came as a slave. That's where the story of Daniel begins, as he's brought to a new place, a new beginning. But where is God's kingdom going to come? In our series, in the weeks ahead, we'll be looking at Daniel in the first several stories, chapters 1 through 6, to see how is God's kingdom coming? even though all around it, it seems that the kingdoms of this world are winning. We'll look at that today in Daniel chapter 1. What ways does the world try to assimilate you 
into its kingdom. And how should we deal with that? We'll first look at how the world wants to assimilate you. Secondly, how God allows the world to assimilate you. And thirdly, how God uses that experience to demonstrate his power and victory. Yes, the world wants to oppress you and assimilate you into its kingdom. The backstory of Daniel shows that this has been going on not just for Daniel's lifetime, but it's gone back to the beginning of time. It's the story of history. In fact, most of history in terms of global dominance is just a tug of war. It's a tug of war that endlessly goes on between nations. I handed out this map at the beginning and you'll see how this has happened as the different colors on the map show the battle beginning with Egypt and its kingdoms in orange, the Hittite kingdom in purple, the Assyrian kingdom in yellow, leading up to the Babylonian kingdom in blue, and continuing on all the way up to the Romans at the time of Christ. This tug of war goes on endlessly. In the story of the Bible, it becomes most significant in the story of the Exodus, when Egypt is the world power. And as the world power at the time, they were able to rescue the world from famine. And Joseph and his family, the Israelites, came to Egypt looking for them to Egypt to help them at a time of great distress. But while they were settling into Egypt and beginning to live the life there, pretty soon the kingdom of Egypt was no longer going to be satisfied with them. And it enslaved them. It took them captive and made them work for the gods that they worship, for the pharaoh and his purposes, building great monuments and pyramids. But Egypt wouldn't hold its power forever. Assyria came along, and if you heard anything about world history, Assyria, with their capital in Nineveh, was one of the most brutally violent empires that the world has ever known. But they were successful, and they took over power. But that didn't last forever, and pretty soon they weakened, and then in came the Babylonians. It was during that transition from Assyria to Babylon that you see the colors on your map changing power, that there was a significant tug of war, and right in the middle there was a knot. Egypt was coming up from the south to try to grab their quick grab at power against the Assyrians in the north. And then from the east, the Babylonians were coming over to make their grab on power and riches. Who was caught in the middle? There's this little strip of land. The Bible calls it the promised land. And it's consistently in the middle of all these power struggles, like a knot in the middle of that tug-of-war battle. Sometimes it's pulled this way, sometimes it's pulled that way. It was at the time of King Josiah, the good king, 
that Egypt made their play against Assyria and Babylon did as well. And there, right in the middle, their good king, Josiah, was ambushed and killed by the Egyptians. And from there on, the Egyptians tried to express their dominance over Judah. And they appointed a king who would rule in their favor. But they weren't strong enough, so Babylon came along and said, no, 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 we're not going to have you allying with Egypt. And so the kingdom swayed back the other way to ally with Babylon. And finally, the Babylonians said, we've had enough. And they crushed Jerusalem, Judea, laid it all to waste, destroyed the temple, and they took the people back captive. Now, some of you might not be into history as much as others, and you, maybe you're hearing these names, which, by the way, I think our readers today deserve a round of applause because uh, they read those names very well. Some of you get back into these names in the Old Testament. You can't even pronounce them. Of course, my catechism class can. You'll find out about that on Christmas Eve. But the point of all of this is to show you the tug of war between men and peoples and nations who think that they are king. What is the knot that you're in the middle of? What is the place where you're knotted up in the middle of a struggle that pulls you this way, pulls you that way? Who's tugging to gain control and power over you, over your situation? Because Christians are always in the knot. It's not because of that strip of land that's most important for the struggle. It's because of God's promise. As soon as God makes a promise to his people, a battle ensues, and each side wants control. Everyone else wants control, and they want control over you, over your choices, your future, your hope. Daniel was knotted up in the middle of a power struggle, and this will continue on until the end of time. But the answer to this struggle is not to get out of the knot. It's not to say, well, I guess this side looks better than that side. It's not a political power choice between one side or the other to win. Instead, it's to face the tension of living in the middle of kingdoms that are fighting for dominance and knowing that only the Lord can unravel the knot. You see, God is ultimately the one in control. That's the whole theme of the book of Daniel. In chapter 2, when Daniel talks to the king about the Lord, he says, there is a God in heaven who changes times and seasons who removes kings and sets up kings, who gives wisdom to the wise and reveals deep and hidden things, and the light dwells with him. Yes, God allows the world to think it's winning and it's accomplishing its goals and purposes. It even allows the world to assimilate you into its setting and culture, society, 
So it can oppress you and make you think you're subject, that you're not free, that you don't have a choice, that you simply have caught up and you have to go along because this is the course of human history. You see, there's a negotiation going on in a sense, and the Lord allows it to happen. I was listening to an interview by Jordan Peterson, and he is a philosopher, psychologist with a Christian worldview. He interviews a lot of interesting people, and one of the interviews he did was with a U.S. hostage negotiator, an ambassador who was named Robert O'Brien. He served under President Donald Trump and was involved in many foreign negotiations. He tells the story of one negotiation he was involved with in Sweden, and the Swedish government had taken an American into containment, and that American uh, was a rap artist. And the president decided that this was not fair and it was not the right choice, and so he came out with a strong stance that we were going to bring this American who's detained back home. Well, the Swedish government didn't like that because that would make them look foolish because they arrested this man and they were prosecuting him. He was caught up in some kind of a scuffle and there was a debate about who started it and all that. So this U.S. hostage negotiator goes over and he meets with the Swedish government. And he says the most important thing when you go into that negotiation is you have to know when you're going to pack up your briefcase. And if you don't know that, don't go into the meeting. It's like when we're negotiating with our kids and there's a give and take going on, trying to figure out what the problem is, trying to figure out a solution, but every parent knows there's a point at which the child will remain the child and you can't give them everything they want, it wouldn't be good for them. Well, that reached that point where the Swedish government said, well, we're not gonna let him go. And the American said, well, we have to have him back or we're going to look foolish for saying and not following through. We're going to look weak. And so finally he packed up his briefcase. Said, well, we tried. I commend you for holding to your stance. And by the way, you won't sell another Volvo in America ever again. Well, as soon as they heard that, they said, well, now hold on, hold on, hold on. Come back, come back, come back. Brought him back to the table and they worked it out. They worked it out so that the Swedish government could make it look like the Americans were not being fair and whatnot, but they accomplished their goal. God allows a certain level of negotiation. Listen to how Daniel is dealing with this situation. They brought him there. And the idea of the government is to bring in the wisest, the best skilled, the most honorable men from the Israelite government and nobility. And among them are Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And among these who are brought in, they're brought into the king's court to serve there. And for three years they're instructed. It says to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonian wise men. 
And during this three years, they're living there in the court of the king. They're surrounded by Babylonian culture, Babylonian religion, Babylonian food and people. Imagine the influence that that would have on them. But the direction that the Lord gives them is not to rebel, not to fight against it. In fact, we read this in Jeremiah earlier. Jeremiah prophesied that all of this would happen. There would be a 70-year captivity and exile there in Babylon where they would have to live in these circumstances. And when he predicts this, he says, Thus says the Lord to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. See, it's not the Babylonians that are in charge. He says, Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat the fruit, get married, keep on having children, and pray for the welfare of the city. So he says, don't revolt, don't rebel, don't escape, but pray for the city and seek its prosperity. Contribute, settle down, and do what you can to bring a positive influence into the place where you're going to be living for the next two generations. So God allows this all to happen. In fact, Daniel is taken through Babylonian University. You imagine what Daniel would have been taught while he was there. He would have been exposed to Babylonian mythology. The Babylonian religion and its gods. He would have been taught how to do sorcery divination, how they practiced astrology, would have been taught about their history, would have been taught their language. And you, in fact, see this in the book of Daniel. After chapter 1, it switches from the Hebrew language to Aramaic, showing the shift that God's people underwent from their own past to their current situation And most of all, rather than letting them live there with their Hebrew names, they changed their names so that Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah became Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. That's quite an assimilation. And if it weren't for God's part in all of this, we would wonder how this makes any sense. If you remember last week, we talked about the apocalypse. And does anybody remember what the word apocalypse means? The simple picture is it's pulling back the curtain. We see everything from the surface level. We see the kingdoms of this world vying for the tug of war. But pulling back the curtain is the only way that the Lord lets us see. He's got a greater purpose in mind. And that purpose is that God will use you in the midst of oppression and persecution to demonstrate his power. Because although there might be a sort of assimilation going on that we don't even, we're not even aware of. It's all around us, the way that the world is influencing us. There comes a point where God does draw a line in the sand, where in the midst of assimilation, 
God dissimilates his people. You notice this in the verses that follow. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Does this sound familiar to anyone about a captive Israelite who spent time in a foreign government and yet found favor and advancement despite it all? Well, there was another one named Joseph who went through very much the same thing at the beginning of the Old Testament. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Go ahead and test your servants for ten days. Give us only vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then watch our appearance. And compare it to the appearance of the youths who eat the table and the king's food. And deal with us according to what you see as the outcome. So he listened and he tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, he saw that Daniel was in better appearance and he was fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, I know most of us wouldn't see that as a victory, that he got fatter as a result of the Lord's purpose. But in that culture, the wise men were supposed to gain weight. They were supposed to look overweight, and that was seen as healthy. And even though they're eating just vegetables, they still gain weight. And they're healthy, they're looking fit. The steward took away the food and the wine that they were to drink, and he continued to give them vegetables. And from there you see them advance in their skill and their learning, and they advance beyond all of their other classmates. They're valedictorians, they're top of the class at Babylonian University because the Lord has having favor on them. Why the food? In the midst of all the choices they could make to refuse this or refuse that, why is it the food? I don't have a really good answer for this, I'll tell you honestly. There are a couple of options It perhaps was the food and wine because of the table fellowship. They were asked to eat with certain people in the king's court, and they felt that would be wrong. It could be the Old Testament law about the types of meat you eat and the way that it's processed could be against their own ceremonial law. It could be that this meat was actually offered in an idol sacrifice, and so it was part of their worship service. And they were asked to participate in that, regardless of which reason was influencing Daniel's conscience. Daniel sees that there's come a point where if he continues to engage in this activity, it will defile him. 
The point of this is not for us to figure out how we can get healthier or fatter in their sense by what we eat and what we choose not to eat. It's not a diet plan for any one of you. It's not rules for good behavior. When Jesus says, follow me, you read this in the Gospels, you'll notice. Jesus' command to follow me is almost always unique. He'll tell one guy, hey, don't go to the funeral. We got places we got to go. He'll tell another person, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. He'll tell another woman, don't worry about anything, just don't sin anymore in the way that you've been doing it. The follow me command is something that Jesus gives. It's universal in terms of the gospel, but it's unique in terms of how God's going to confront you to live in the setting you're living in with the people that are around you and where your conscience is bound. Because people will often ask me, how do I live this out in my workplace? Well, I'm guessing that almost every one of your workplaces is unique. Every person in your workplace is unique. The way that they are dealing with their employees is unique. And rather than me try to give a checklist for what you can do and can't do to negotiate... Pray and let the Lord lead you to see where are the things that in my personal struggle, temptation, personality, and weakness, I'm going to defile myself. I'm going to defile my conscience. I'm going to defile my heart. I'm going to cross the line that I know the Lord has set for me. And that's the point where you say, I can't. I can deal with this. I can deal with that. I can go to the training if I have to. I can listen to the video if I must. But there's a point at which my classroom will not allow that to be taught. Or I can't support that cause. Whatever it is where you're at. Daniel is saying there's a point at which assimilation becomes dissimilation, where Christians branch off from what the world is going along with, and they say, I can't do that. They say it with modesty. They say it with respect. They say it in a way that takes into consideration what the chief of eunuchs is going to have to deal with if this Christian makes this choice but they stick to the place that God has placed them. And they trust the Lord. And God demonstrates his power to encourage you in the midst of assimilation that he is victorious, that he is rescuing the lost, that he is allowing all this to happen to Daniel so that eventually there's going to come a point where Daniel can influence the king. So what is the negotiation you're caught up in? What is the tug of war? What are the shackles, the knot that you're being tightened up in? 
What happens to a knot when you pull on both ends of the rope anyways? It becomes tighter. And as it becomes tighter and tighter, the more the other sides pull. Can anybody get that knot undone if they keep pulling? Only the Lord can bring an end to those powers, not us. And only the Lord can unravel that knot that to you might feel so wound up that you don't know what to do. But in the gospel, God does it. He frees you from that setting. He brings your heart to a different place. He sets you free so that you know they don't have any power over you. I'm the Lord and I'm your king. Amen.